Welcome to Bandcamp. I'm Jennifer. And my name's Dan, and this is the podcast where we read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. And this season, we're reading Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird, one chapter at a time. So, Dan, big number 20, the 2-0. We are in it. We are in the middle of the trial. Tom Robinson was just uh, up on the witness stand. So we know the book is 30 chapters long, and this is chapter 20. Apparently, um, I was incorrect. The, the book is 31 chapters. Added a couple more words. Okay, I got it. Okay. <laughs> Money grab from Harper Lee. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we're close. We're, we're within 11 chapters. After this, it'll be 10 officially. So we ended up with Tom Robinson up on the witness stand and Dill was upset over how he was being treated and he got sick and he wanted to leave. Correct. So that mind, maybe we'll be in the courtroom, maybe not. Let's see. Delving into chapter 20. Come on round here, son. I got something that'll settle your stomach. As Mr. Dolphus Raymond was an evil man, I accepted his invitation reluctantly. But I followed Dill. Why does she think he's an evil man? I think so far he's like one of the coolest guys in town. He's a uh, white guy who, who likes hanging around with black people. What put it in her head, though? Usually that sort of thing comes from parents. Maybe the other people in town told her that. I don't yeah. know. Somehow, I didn't think Atticus would like it if we became friendly with Mr. Raymond, and I knew Aunt Alexandra wouldn't. Here, he said, offering Dill his paper sack with straws in it. Take a sip. It'll quieten you. Maybe he is an evil man. <laughs> He's going to get... So what we the other thing we do know about Mr. Dolphus Raymond is that he drinks out of a paper bag uh, <laughs> Coca-Cola and booze. He likes to shinny it up. <laughs> wow, he's going to get Dill tanked up. I mean, it's a hard issue to deal with. I don't, uh, But you don't give it to a kid. You know, like being in his position, it's got to suck to live back then. Yeah. So I can understand, you know, you got to take things to get through with your life because life is terrible. When, but, you know, yeah. as a kid. Uh, how, how old were you when you took your first sip of booze? Of something, beer, whatever. I don't know. It's quite late. Quite late. Like in the 20s. I don't uh, know. Really? Mm -hmm. I'd like to say I was 18. Unfortunately, I can't say that because it was 16. Hmm. Dill sucked on the straws, smiled, and pulled at length. Hee hee, said Mr. Raymond, evidently taking delight in corrupting a child. This guy is evil. Hee <laughs> <laughs> hee. Dill, you watch out now, I warned. Dill released the straws and grinned. Scout, it's nothing but Coca-Cola. Mr. Raymond sat up against the tree trunk. He had been lying on the grass. You little folks won't tell on me now, will you? It ruined my reputation if he did. Oh, so it's just soda. But is this back in the days when there was actually cocaine in the soda? Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. You mean all you drink in that sack's Coca-Cola? Just plain Coca-Cola? Yes, ma'am, Mr. Raymond nodded. I liked his smell. <laughs> the smell. What is going on with this kid? <clears throat> I liked his smell. It was of leather, horses, cottonseed. He wore only the... English riding boots. He wrote. He, oh, he wore the only English riding boots I had ever seen. 
And I tried to frame a discreet question. Why do you do like you do? (laughs) Why do you do like you do, Dan? (laughs) Well, how do you do? (laughs) What? Oh, yes. You mean, why do I pretend? Well, it's very simple, he said. Some folks don't like the way I live. Now, I could say the hell with them. I don't care if they don't like it. I do say I don't care if they don't like it. Right enough. But I don't say the hell with them. See? Dylan, I said, no, sir. I try to give them a reason, you see. It helps folks if they latch onto a reason. When I come to town, which is seldom, if I weave a little and drink out of this sack, folks can say, Dolphus Raymond's in the clutches of whiskey. That's why he won't change his ways. He can't help himself. That's why he lives the way he does. That ain't honest, Mr. Raymond, making yourself out better than you are already. It ain't honest, but I'm mighty helpful to folks. Secretly, Miss Finch, I'm not much of a drinker. But you see, they could never, never understand that I live like I do because that's the way I want to live. I had a feeling that I shouldn't be here listening to this sinful man who had mixed children and didn't care who knew it. But he was fascinating. I had never encountered a being who deliberately perpetuated fraud against himself. But why had he entrusted us with his deepest secret? I asked him why. Because your children and you can understand it, he said. And because I heard that one, he jerked his head at Dill. Things haven't caught up with this one's instinct yet. Let him get a little older and he won't get sick and cry. Maybe things will strike him as being not quite right, say, but he won't cry, not when he gets a few years on him. Cry about what, Mr. Raymond? Dill's maleness was beginning to assert itself. Dill's maleness? Ray, don't call me a big wussy. I was crying because I don't know why I was crying. It wasn't fair how that person was being treated, right? Which is, I think, an admirable thing. Yeah, I think so, too. Cry about the simple hell people give other people without even thinking. Cry about the hell white people give colored folks without even stopping to think that they're people, too. Perfectly put. Yeah. Kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Atticus says cheating a colored man is ten times worse than cheating a white man, I muttered. Says it's the worst thing you can do. Mr. Raymond said... I don't reckon it's Miss Jean Louise. You don't know your pa's not a run-of-the-mill man. It'll take a few years for that to sink in. You haven't seen enough of the world yet. You haven't even seen this town. But all you gotta do is step back inside the courthouse. Which reminded me that we were missing nearly all of Mr. Gilmer's cross-examination. I looked at the sun and it was dropping fast behind the store tops on the west side of the square. Between two fires, I could not decide which I wanted to jump into, Mr. Raymond or the Fifth Judicial Circuit Court. Come on, Dill, I said. You all right now? Yeah, glad to have met you, Mr. Raymond, and thanks for the drink. It was mighty settling. We raced back to the courthouse, up the steps, up two flights of stairs, and edged our way along the balcony rail. Reverend Sykes had saved our seats. The courtroom was still, and again I wondered where... The babies were. Judge Taylor's cigar was a brown speck in the center of his mouth. God, the poor man, he must be famished. Judge, go eat another cigar quickly. (laughs) Mr. Gilmer was writing on one of the yellow pads on his table, trying to outdo the court reporter whose hand was jerking rapidly. 
Shoot, I muttered. We missed it. Atticus was halfway through his speech to the jury. He had evidently pulled some papers from his briefcase that rested beside his chair because they were on his table. Tom Robinson was toying with them. Absence of any corroborative evidence. This man was indicted on a capital charge and is now on trial for his life. I punched Jim. How long's he been at it? He's just gone over the evidence, Jim whispered, and we're going to win, Scout. Oh, poor kid. I don't see how we can't. He's been at it about five minutes. He made it as plain and easy as, well, as Ida explained to you. You could have understood it even. Did Mr. Gilmer? Shh. Nothing new. Just the usual. Hush now. We looked down again. Atticus was speaking easily with the kind of detachment he used when he dictated a letter. He walked slowly up and down in front of the jury, and the jury seemed to be attentive. Their heads were up, and they followed Atticus's route with what seemed to be appreciation. I guess it was because Atticus wasn't a thunderer. You know what? I don't know. I actually don't know which way the jury votes in this. I really don't. It's weird because the town knows exactly who the Yules are. Right. And That's right. And then someone like Tom, who is actually, I mean, he seems very respectful and nice and everything. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it better at least give them pause. Yeah. Or I, I mean, otherwise, how can they live with themselves really? And they know who Atticus is. Right. And, and the, to the kids, it's clear. Well, kids know more. And that's exactly what Dolphus Raymond said too, right? Like he just, you don't get it yet. Uh, scout because you actually haven't seen enough of the world like mm-hmm. it you got and and even him lying about drinking coke and whiskey all the time why are you telling us because you kids will get it kids yeah. get stuff the older you get the dumber you get Atticus paused then he did something he didn't ordinarily do he unhitched his watch and chain and placed them on the table saying with the court's permission judge Taylor nodded and then Atticus did something I never saw him do before or since In public or in private, he unbuttoned his vest, unbuttoned his collar, loosened his tie, and took off his coat. He never loosened a scrap of his clothing until he undressed at bedtime. And to Jem and me, this was the equivalent of him standing before us stark naked. We exchanged horrified glances. What's he doing? (laughs) Jem, what's he doing? Why is our dad undressed in front of the town boy Atticus is pulling out all the stops all the tricks (laughs) hi I'm Dan and my name's Jennifer and we're from Bandcamp a comedy podcast where we read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. Season six of Bandcamp premieres on June 4th, and we picked a fantastic book for this season. And the name of the book is Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe by Benjamin Allier Science. It's our first contemporary book. It explores friendship and sexuality through the experiences of two Mexican-American teenagers living in El Paso in the 80s. 
If you are new to Bandcamp, each season we read an entire book. In each episode of that season, Jennifer reads the chapter out loud and we comment and try to have fun as we go. New episodes drop every Tuesday and Thursday. So please join us as we try and figure out why Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe could have ever been banned. But I bet we're not going to find anything because banning books is stupid. Season 6 premieres on June 4th. See you there. Atticus put his hands in his pockets, and as he returned to the jury, I saw his gold collar button and the tips of his pen and pencil winking in the light. Gentlemen, he said. Jem and I again looked at each other. Atticus might have said, Scout. His voice had lost its aridity, its detachment, and he was talking to the jury as if they were folks on the post office corner. Gentlemen, he was saying, I shall be brief but I would like to use my remaining time with you to remind you that this case is not a difficult one. It requires no minute sifting of complicated facts, but it does require you to be sure beyond all reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the defendant. To begin with, this case should never have come to trial. This case is as simple as black and white. (laughs) I'm sure he Mm. means that. That's neat. The state has not produced one iota of medical evidence to the effect that the crime Tom Robinson is charged with ever took place. It has relied instead upon the testimony of two witnesses whose evidence has not only been called into serious question on cross-examination, but has been flatly contradicted by the defendant. The defendant is not guilty, but somebody in this courtroom is. I have nothing but pity in my heart for the chief witness for the state but my pity does not extend so far as to her putting a man's life at stake, which she has done in an effort to get rid of her own guilt. I say guilt, gentlemen, because it was guilt that motivated her. She has committed no crime. She has merely broken a rigid and time-honored code of our society, a code so severe that whoever breaks it is hounded from our midst as unfit to live with. She is the victim of cruel poverty and ignorance but I cannot pity her. She is white. She knew full well the enormity of her offense, but because her desires were stronger than the code she was breaking, she persisted in breaking it. She persisted, and her subsequent reaction is something that all of us have known at one time or another. She did something every child has done. She tried to put the evidence of her offense away from her, but in this case, she was no child hiding stolen contraband. She struck out her victim. Of necessity, she must put him away from her. He must be removed from her presence, from this world. She must destroy the evidence of her offense. What was the evidence of her offense? Tom Robinson, a human being. She must put Tom... Oh, yeah, like point that out for sure, that he's a human being. She must put Tom Robinson away from her. Tom Robinson was her daily reminder of what she did. What did she do? She tempted a Negro. She was white and she tempted a Negro. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man, not an old uncle, but a strong young Negro man. No code mattered to her before she broke it, but it came crashing down on her afterwards. Her father saw it and the defendant has testified as to his remarks. What did her father do? We don't know. But there is circumstantial evidence to indicate that Mayela Ewell was beaten savagely by someone who led almost exclusively with his left. We do know, in part, what Mr. Ewell did. He did what any 
God-fearing, persevering, respectable white man would do under the circumstances. He swore out a warrant, no doubt signing it with his left hand. And Tom Robinson now sits before you, having taken the oath with the only good hand he possesses, his right hand. And so a quiet, respectable, humble Negro who had the unmitigated temerity to feel sorry for a white woman has had to put his word against two white peoples. I need not remind you of their appearance and conduct on the stand. You saw them for yourselves. The witnesses for the state, with the exception of the sheriff of Macomb County, have presented themselves to you, gentlemen, to this court in the cynical confidence that their testimony would not be doubted, confident that you gentlemen would go along with them on the assumption, the evil assumption, that all Negroes lie, that all Negroes are basically immoral beings, that all Negro men are not to be trusted around our women, an assumption one associates with minds of their caliber. So he's asking the jury to rise above the Yules. Mm -hmm. Don't be a Yule. Which gentleman we know is in itself a lie as black as Tom Robinson's skin, a lie I do not have to point out to you. You know the truth, and the truth is this. Some Negroes lie, some Negroes are immoral, some Negro men are not to be trusted around women, black or white. But this is a truth that applies to the human race and to no particular race of men. There is not a person in this courtroom who has never told a lie and who has never done an immoral thing. And there is no man living who has never looked upon a woman without desire. Atticus paused and took out his handkerchief. Then he took off his glasses and wiped them, and we saw another first. We had never seen him sweat. He was one of those men whose faces never perspired, but now it was shining tan. One more thing, gentlemen, before I quit. Thomas Jefferson once said that all men are created equal. A phrase that the Yankees and the distaff side of the executive branch in Washington are fond of hurling at us. There is a tendency in this year of grace, 1935, for certain people to use the phrase out of context, to satisfy all conditions. The most ridiculous example I can think of is that the people who run public education promote the stupid and idle along with the industrious. Because all men are created equal, educators will gravely tell you, the children left behind suffer terrible feelings of inferiority. We know all men are not created equal in the sense some people would have us believe. Some people are smarter than others. Some people have more opportunity because they're born with it. Some men make more money than others. Some ladies make better cakes than others. Some people are born gifted beyond the normal scope of most men. But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. Love it. Yep. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest J.P. court in the land, or this honorable court which you serve. Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers, and in our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It is a living, working reality. Gentlemen, a court is no better than each man of you sitting before me on this jury. Absolutely right. Yep. 
A court is only as sound as its jury, and a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. Atticus's voice had dropped, and as he turned away from the jury, he said something I did not catch. He said it more to himself than the court. I punched Jem. What'd he say? In the name of God, believe him. I think that's what he said. Dill suddenly reached over me and tugged at Jem. Look a yonder. We followed his finger with sinking hearts. Calpurnia was making her way up the middle aisle, walking straight toward Atticus. End of chapter 20. And why are they worried about Calpurnia walking up there? Is she going to kick the crap out of Atticus? I hope she goes for Mr. Gilmore. I hope she takes out this whole jury. <laughs> Another grand piece of fan fiction from Dan. It's time for PPP, Problematic Points to Ponder. What, if anything, would be considered banworthy in this chapter? If, if our theory about, you know, the N-word being a, a scapegoat to ban the book is true, then the idea that Black people are equal... <laughs> Like laid out very plainly. That's the, in, yeah, <laughs> that's the real reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, it was just as a pretty short chapter, actually. I think it was the heart of the book, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I think this is why Harper Lee wrote the book. It was basically, um, wasn't the entire chapter his closing argument? And the little thing with the kids in the beginning learning about the Coke and whiskey lie. Yeah, but it's. I mean, let me let me mold that over. Let me chew on that like one of those judges. God. Let's see. I mean, that's an interesting thing. It's like, oh, I, I'm helping people by giving them an excuse to yeah. excuse me, you know, like they can't face me. They need to blame something else. Like I'm drunk all the time. That's why I accept that black people are humans. Oh, that's interesting. It's a bit cowardly. He should just be in all in their face about it. Yeah, but he's into effort mode, right? I just want to live my life. If it if it makes it easier for him to think I'm a drunk, I'm whatever. Who cares? They're dummies. I know, but that's not helping anyone. It's helping him. It's not really helping his his children, though. That's true. Oh, that you is know? actually really true, isn't it? It's kind of so... setting them up for a whole life of stuff they don't have to deal with. They already have to deal with enough. Ah, well, good, great chapter. Didn't see anything. Nothing ban worthy. Again, we beg, we plead our audience to come at us with suggestions. Right. Why do people want this book banned for the love of God? <laughs> we need your help to understand it. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook. From ban worthy to binge worthy. All right, now we go from man-worthy to binge-worthy. We want to give a shout-out to a podcast that was a major influence to us. And if you like Bandcamp, you're probably going to like the podcast that we're going to talk about. Yes, and of course, we're talking about the masterpiece that is Obscure, by it's Michael Ian Black's podcast, where he takes a book, a novel, reads the whole thing, and comments along the way. Obviously, he was a huge influence on what we're doing here. Except he lacks the, uh, what would you call it, Dan? Dumbness. I was about to say dumbness, but I think there's plenty of dumb included packed in there. 
Yeah. Which makes, which is what makes it so lovely. It's really fun to hear yeah. him talk his way through the books, and he, he's just so hilarious. I I can listen to it all day long. That's so, right. So, uh, if you like us, and you you know you like to have a book read out loud to you with commentary, yep. Go listen to the uh, literary man splainer in chief, Michael Ian Black. Michael, thanks for influencing us. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next for the next chapter, and I'm assuming the next chapter is where we're going to find out the fate. Um, I forgot the guy's name. <laughs> what guy? Tom Johnson. Don Johnson. Ro- I was going to say D- Don, Don Johnson. Like, it would be something if um, if Atticus pulls in a surprise witness and it's Tubbs from Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs>